author of *Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect*. I uh, I was looking back at our last episode and I realized I think there's like a one second delay between you and I. Yeah. Because we'd both start talking and, and pause and pause and you keep going. It's just so I'm just gonna shut up this episode and just let you talk and we can <laughs> we'll we'll completely circumvent that. I think we actually got to the point where we were negotiating it pretty well, sort of by instinct. I mean, that's true in a lot of oh, phone okay. media nowadays anyway. Yeah. So that's that's how they prevent feedback loops. And uh, plus there's the oh, yeah. usual transmission delays and encoding and decoding and all is all. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, uh, I, I seem to have recalled mentioning the word insects last time. Insects. <laughs> and uh it's like, oh yeah, porn. Yeah, the history uh, of the history of porn. It was weird because yeah. we talked about vacuum tubes, and then the next morning, I had on a guy that does laser cleaning, and it was just like I did see a bit of him. Yeah, it's just like the opposite ends of like early nineteen hundreds, almost like steampunkish, and then it's like the the billionth of a mic a micrometer. To me, that sounded as ludicrous as Prime Intellect saying, I moved it out into intergalactic space. It was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, and I thought the coolest thing about that line is that most people would have expected it to be interstellar space. Yeah. But it's like, nope. You know, Just nope. I can nope. do anything. I'm God. <laughs> Inter- intergalactic, inner supercluster space. Just wherever you want. Do whatever you want. But, uh, but anyway, the. Uh more risque chapters of prime intellect have uh, attracted the interest of some people who had other interesting interests. Mm-hmm. And I've always been interested in how things work. And one of the biggest mysteries is how people work. And uh, things like pornography are fascinating to me because they reveal patterns of usage and patterns of behavior that otherwise get kind of hidden because we are such complicated mishmashes of behavior and and i do like to say too it's like when you have people doing something that is sanctioned that's uh that's not necessarily what you would consider optimizing things for yourself you know it's Mm -hmm. it's uh it's like well why do people do this this thing that uh isn't necessarily to their advantage um and I've also liked to make the point is that when you're trying to figure out how something works, uh, it's easier to f- make progress if you watch it when it's broken. Yeah. If you watch if you watch cars drive by all day long and you have no idea how a car works, then you might not know any. I mean, you might not be able to figure out what's making a move forward. Is it is it fire? Is it electricity? Uh, is is the guy pushing with his feet? How do you you know what's doing that? But if you see one going by belching black smoke, then you know fire is involved somehow. Mm. Um, And I think that uh, porn is really interesting because it's a very basic behavior. It's something where our primal urges are interfacing directly with the more complex world. And I have a rather different reconstruction of how it's progressed than most people do. Uh, You've probably heard the phrase that porn drives technology, uh, which became a a bit... I, I, my next door neighbors are like young children and I realize I have my window open because the weather's great and of all podcast <laughs> episodes this might not be the one for them to I don't think they can hear it they're, they're a floor below me and across the lawn and there are planes flying but just for the sake of being a good human <laughs> I'm just, I'm, these 10 year olds don't need to hear this conversation <laughs> of, of all episodes <laughs> 
I decide to have the windows open. It just so happens to be the one where we get off onto let's talk about porn. <laughs> <laughs> My luck would be whoop whoop. See some cop cars coming up like, hey, Mr. Kerrigan, we're with uh, the FBI. I'd be like, for what? Are you guys fans of the podcast? Uh, not re- not really. Uh, uh, oh, okay. I, I, I don't know, actually. If they have internet access, we're not going to talk about anything they haven't no, already seen. You know, you're right, but <laughs> I'm going to let their parents steal at that, not me. Because hey, that's fine if that's your if those are your kids. It's a lot weirder mm-hmm. if it's a 30-year-old dude across the street like, hey, like, you, nope. I ain't dipping my toes in there. Nope. Windows are closed, though, so we're good. Porn. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So anyway, it became popular to say that porn drives technology in the mm-hmm. mid-90s because a lot of the web, uh, early web marketing stuff was invented by the porn industry. But my read on it is exactly the opposite. Technology has always driven porn. Uh, and you have to see porn as a system. It involves content creation, uh, distribution, and patterns of consumption. And all of those things are important and all of those things define uh, what I consider like a phase of the development of porn. Okay. Now, if you put the phrase history of porn into the Google, uh, you'll get dozens of hits, almost all of which will start with Paleolithic figurines and Greek and Roman art. And I consider that completely wrong. Uh, those things are not pornography because they're not made, they're not distributed, and they're not used the way that pornography is. The Paleolithic figurines are religious icons. They represent the fecundity and fertility of both humans and the earth, and they're meant to be used in rituals. They're not meant to be used as sex aids. Uh, Similarly, if you are a wealthy Roman householder and you commission a painting of two people copulating on your living room wall, not your bedroom wall, your living room wall, because this is what they found in Pompeii. Mm -hmm. When the Victorians excavated Pompeii, they were shocked at all the sexual imagery that they uncovered and everywhere. So it's like literally you would have pictures like this in your living room. Now, why do you do that? You're not doing that to strike a boner. Okay. I mean, that's it's it's just part of the mood. You're doing that to establish a mood. The same reason you might paint the room green instead of blue. It's more to say, you're, like, you're establishing a mood of sensuality and relaxation and entertainment. Because the other thing about the Romans in particular is they don't seem to have had the idea that we do at all that sex needs to be private or that it should be sanctioned. Yeah. So to them, being naked in public might be humiliating if you were uh, a you know, a a higher class person who should have more dignity than that. But it wasn't like we would consider it a crime in the end of the world or something, you know. Um, In fact, this was depicted pretty well in the HBO series Rome, where there were a couple of scenes where uh, Lycadia was actually fucking somebody and slaves would come in and distract them with questions and all. And they would just attend to it and then go back to what they were doing and all. Mm -hmm. It's just like, it's not like, Walking, having them walk in on you while you're having sex was like, oh my god! Yeah, it was just, like it ha- was just a thing that you would do, like any other thing that you yeah. would do. Having a good meal, like go away, I'm eating, I'm, I'm eating, go away. It's exactly yeah. just a different appetite. Yeah. So, so when did porn actually come about? The way that we think of it today, uh, and my contention is that it came about in the mid 17th century, and it was in the form of pamphlets, and. This was mostly in France. There was a 
bit of it in England and some of the other European countries too, but France was the hotbed of pamphleting. And it was driven by a two-pronged thing. Part of it was political. And there were a lot of dissenting political pamphlets. And the mechanism for distributing something that was sanctioned by the authorities was really invented for them, but that made it possible to distribute things that were sanctioned for other reasons. So you had pornographic pamphlets. In fact, a lot of the political pamphlets were pornographic. They were like pornographic depictions of the royals, particularly Marie Antoinette doing things uh, <laughs> that's salacious. And of course, you had the Marquis de Sade operating at this time. And he uh, took it all to the max as far as uh, extremes, as far as pushing boundaries. And the way that these things were distributed, okay, the, the nice thing about pamphlets is they're fairly easy to produce in small quantities. You can produce them on a small press. So it doesn't take a lot of infrastructure, which is important for something that is sanctioned because you always have a risk that it'll be seized, that, it'll, you know, that you'll have a raid. And it was distributed by street runners. Almost exactly the same way that illegal drugs are still distributed today almost everywhere. You would have a guy standing on a street corner and you would never know where he was going to be. Uh, he wouldn't have much product on him. So if the cops came, he could just run. Yeah. Uh, he wouldn't have much product. So he would have lookouts. And since he wouldn't have much product, there would be a place that he could go nearby to re-up when he exhausted what he had on his person. And so this was a system that had been made very effective over the course of an entire century. Hmm. And this was the primary distribution method for pornographic things through the middle of the 19th century. And uh, there were no photographs, obviously. There were drawings. And uh, the thing is, the technology of the day required you to do a woodcut to print a drawing or, mm -hmm. or something like that, you know, because there were no photographic techniques. But there were like uh, cartoonish representations of the royals that you were, inv you know, sure. involving uh, things like that. Sure. But that was a channel of porn, a system of production. You would have the, the original writers who created the content would generally be paid once. And this is a theme that goes straight through to today. Yeah which is the actual content creators don't get much of the money if they get any uh, because they tend to be paid one time, work for higher basis where that's uh, the legal thing and they never see anything else. It's the printers and distributors who get the lion's share of the money, but then that's always been considered fair because they also take the lion's share of the risk. They're the ones who are going to get caught if you're print shop is raided or if the uh, if you get busted because uh, one of your street runners is caught and rats you out or something. Sure. But uh, that was the system. And then people would buy these things and they would read them. And it's a convenient uh, length to use as a masturbation aid or to read to your uh, significant other or whatever. And so uh, that completes the loop. You've got production, distribution, consumption, and the consumption being the use as, as a, an aphrodisiac type sex sure. aid sort of sure. uh, factor. So this was what there was until, like I said, the mid 1800s. Now in 1840, John Cleland wrote Fanny Hill. He got a one-time payment for it and it was published. But uh, at that time, it didn't spawn a lot of imitators and it wasn't wildly popular. And of course, it ran afoul of a bunch of laws. So there was a lot of uh, back and forth about the legality of doing that. 
Uh, there weren't any underground channels really for distributing it. That didn't come around, ironically, until after 1857 when Britain passed the Obscene Publications Act. And now this stuff had been a misdemeanor. Now it was a crime. Okay. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it became wildly popular. So this was this began the era of the Victorian novel. That, and, it, uh, and it becomes popular. Yeah, the Pearl, a man with a maid, My Secret Life, all of these things. Sure. Uh, they were hugely popular. They were uh, a lot of copies were published, and of course, they're still in print today because no one has to pay copyright royalties on them. And they're a rather unique product because they're long. They have this whole flowery Victorian way of talking about things, and they are extremely perverted. Mm. They have an obsession with whipping and uh, corporal punishment, in particular. I mean, they don't call it the English vice for nothing. This was a very English phenomenon. <laughs> But this required different production and distribution methods. So at the time the Industrial Revolution was raging, there was a lot of uh, movement to the cities. There was a lot of noise going on where you could hide a bigger operation. So you could hide a printing operation large enough to produce a book and have a good chance of doing a print run without it getting raided. But you can't sell books on the street. They're too heavy. Mm. So. What happened now is you would have a shop, a storefront, where they're selling otherwise uh, legal stuff, but if you know the proprietor and you know the secret handshake and the password or you're referred by a customer, then you get to see the secret stash uh, under the counter. Uh, and, and that would be the model until the 1950s. Uh, in both England and the United States for books and for other things that would come afterward. Um, now, at the time, you had photographs, the first, uh, you know, they, they like to say the first erotic photograph in 1839, the first erotic film in 1896. That wasn't porn because there was no, first of all, the production wasn't really, had no uh, production values. It, it was just, uh, point the camera at the naked girl, take a picture, point the film camera at a, the first that first erotic film was of a middle aged couple having pedestrian sex. I mean, there was like no nothing, but it was just like, hey, you guys willing to get in front of the camera? Yeah, sure. sure. I mean, sure. it was a, I think of that as novelties more yeah. than pornography. Yeah. And, and you would if you had access to it at all. I mean, you got to remember to watch a film until the 19, you know, until, until well into the 1970s to watch any film at all you had to set up a projector you were and, well, probably well to do yeah well uh there was a channel once uh well i'm getting ahead of myself let's let's do it in, in order okay so uh so we've done print now photography evolved uh still photography went through a couple of phases um in the early 1900s, uh, you started to see photo sets appearing along with the books under the counter. And that's exactly what it sounded like. It wasn't like a magazine. It would actually be a stack of photos copied on a, a copy stand uh, on photographic film. And the reason for that is that printing uh, was still evolving toward the ability to offset print a photograph. Uh, the equipment that could do that was crappy at first. It was expensive. It was a big risk to use it to lay out something like a magazine that could be 
seized if it was discovered because it's full of illegal images, because the Comstock Act was still in full force in the early 20th century. So what they would do is you could make us, you you could duplicate one of these photo sets, though, on just a copy stand and develop the film yourself in a dark room in an ordinary house or wherever, Mm -hmm. and you didn't have to do a lot of them at once. And so this was the primary means of distributing photographs until really the the mid 50s the you uh, you had uh offset you know four color printing was invented and became reasonably good quality in the 30s you started to see it used by time and magazines like that but again it's too expensive to use for porn because you can't set up an operation of that scale and risk having it raided and shut down and your equipment seized so it was very gradual that the uh porn moved into technologies that had become convenient enough to allow for the production and at this time it was still being distributed under the counter of that otherwise uh, conventional shop Uh, the under the counter thing is illustrated really nicely in the very first scene of the uh, betty page biopic the notorious betty page where they show one of these shop owners he's got a shop that is kind of on the seedy side but it's legal because he's showing the girly the girly magazines like maxim that was another thing uh you had these magazines that were legal but skirted the edge of nudity and told uh stories with an erotic undertone uh but they, they they but they stayed just that far from the line but this the same shop uh, he had the good stuff under the counter and so this guy comes in making like he's a major pervert and he wants to see the good stuff and uh finally convinces the shopkeeper to uh bring out the the photo set and it's a nerving claw photo set photo set of betty page doing the one of those bondage things and ah he's a fed busts the guy and he rats out irving claw which is how betty page ends up in a congressional hearing in the next scene so uh that was sort of your thing until uh 1953 so you've got this gradually evolving thing you've got the the magazines getting a little closer to the line you've got uh mostly photo sets by the 50s you actually did have a few uh hardcore magazines that would be uh distributed on on the slide but it was still an expensive proposition there was no good way to get that stuff to the public without a lot of risk and uh what broke the next uh wave what started the next phase was this guy named hugh hefner comes along and he has this idea for a magazine that will show full nudity but in a classy way with uh lifestyle stuff and interviews and really good content to show that you know it's an all-around uh thing that the uh the well-read gentleman would be completely interested in and so hef borrowed eight thousand dollars to laid out the first episode of Play, uh, the first issue of Playboy on his kitchen table, and didn't even date it because he didn't know if there would be a second issue. Jesus. <laughs> so, uh, but it turned out to be wildly popular. It's and yeah. it, it came in at just the right time, though, when the Moors had relaxed just enough that uh, mainstream shops were willing to carry something like this. And it was extremely popular, which which helped. He's that that first issue sold out in weeks, um, and so that started that trend. And you had uh, in let's see, I've got a couple of notes up here. Uh, 
1965, Penthouse was founded, uh, pushing the envelope a little further. 1974, Hustler. So you had these mainstream magazines moving the goalpost uh, a little further toward the CD side. And meanwhile, the CD side was getting a little more, uh, well, not reputable, but uh, you started to see adult bookstores where they would just not let you in if you were under under 18. Sure. And they would actually have the, the, the full nudity and everything. And again, they had constant problems with the law. Now, around the mid 60s, the producers of all the stuff, particularly the stuff for adult bookstores kind of got together because you got to remember they had all been criminals 10 years before. So a lot of this really did come from organized crime and they hired a lawyer to draft a set of guidelines and asked them, how can we minimize uh, these prosecutions by podunk sheriffs? I mean, it's really sucks if you're a publisher in New York City and you get a subpoena from Podunk Valley, Georgia, uh, about some magazine that got seized or your shipment got seized. And uh, so they came up with a common set of guidelines. uh, And that was stuff like no golden showers, no scat, obviously. I mean, some of it's pretty obvious. Some of it is less obvious. one of the big ones was you could have like uh, extreme close-ups showing penetration, uh, sexual penetration, sure. but you couldn't show penetration in the same context as bondage. So you okay. couldn't show penetration of a model who was tied up. Okay. Uh, that, that was too close to depicting a crime. Okay. And uh, so there were a number of things like that. And it resulted in some almost hilarious things where people would go into uh, an adult bookstore and pay $20 for a magazine that contains mostly pictures of girls who have all their clothes on because they're tied up. So, uh, (laughs) but that was the situation and it was very, uh, it's, it mostly solved the problem because when there was another prosecution, they would say, look, judge, we have these guidelines. We were advised that if we stuck with these, that we were mostly within the guidelines. We're making sure that children can't get it, blah, blah, blah. And by the way, have you heard of this thing called the First Amendment? We, we think that we have a right to do this. And for the most part, that kept them out of trouble. And that is exactly where things stayed until the mid-90s, as far as the lower tier, the, 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 the more risque end of print photo, photographic bondage. Now, when the Comstock Act was passed, uh, when prosecutions were mounted about all this, one of the things that always comes up is, uh, well, the founding fathers couldn't have possibly imagined, you know, stuff like this when they wrote, the, you know, when they wrote the First Amendment. So they obviously meant except for this stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, except, and, and I've always maintained that that's bullshit. That is. And that's the, horseshit. The, yeah. It's it's fucking well, free speech. The yeah. end. Well, and this is, yeah. Well, this is the reason. Okay, if you think about it, during the Revolutionary War in the late 1700s, France was our biggest ally, mm-hmm. and we had a constant diplomatic presence in Paris. It was Benjamin Franklin for a few years. It was John Adams for a few years, as depicted in his miniseries. So the founders were very aware of French politics. It was very important to them. Mm-hmm. And what did you have in France? You had all these fucking pamphleteers the running around. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so they knew <laughs> so, it. Yeah. So it's like. Yes. When they wrote the First Amendment, they knew exactly what they were making legal. They decided that a healthy society can tolerate this stuff. Make your own decision. Uh, You don't don't need Big Brother telling you that you can't look at penetration, right? It's 
Just fuck off. Welcome to yeah. America. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, well, they didn't have photograph photography then, but you, uh, boy, yeah. some of the stuff they had was way more extreme uh, in, in text form. So anyway, that gets us to movies. Uh, as I said, you know, oh, and the and production values were just, you know, until the magazines started picking it up, uh, you know, the production values for a photo set or for one of these, uh, like sex shop porn mags were just basic. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you could tell in the early days, there was just no production values. If a girl was willing to take off her clothes, you pointed the camera at her and sure. that was how you got photos sure. and then a lot of them were taken obviously in film studios with seamless backdrops and stuff so there you know this was sort of the standard it wasn't really until uh playboy came along that people started to think of applying like production standards to erotic uh productions and you know just like you would if you were taking a picture of or any other kind of magazine illustration where you would control the lighting and control the background and control the setting and everything in order to make it look the way you wanted um and the same was with film uh you would have mostly stag films all right so uh there's no production values it's just you find a couple that's willing to screw in front of a, a running camera Pay him a hundred bucks, whatever. Is that and what a stag film is? then I never knew what a stag film was. I I'd heard the term, I just never bothered to look it up. That's well, okay, that's what it is. It's a short film, uh, generally five or ten minutes, that shows a sexual encounter. And the reason they call them stag films is that uh, one of the primary places you might see one would be at a stag party, like a bachelor party, where you've got a bunch of guys hanging around, you're doing risque stuff. So they would run a projector and they would have a few of these films and you, the guys would watch it. And, and again, I would say that's not really pornographic, though, because you're using it as titillation, but you're not using it as a sex aid when all the guys are hanging around laughing at each other while they watch the movie. That's a different yeah. phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, as you know, as far as using it uh, as a sex aid, I don't know about you, but I have never been so hard up for a Woody that I would have gone to the trouble to set up and thread a film projector no. in order to see five or ten minutes no. of film. No. It's a pain in yeah, it's a pain in the ass. Well, uh, but uh, what you could do in some places was go to an adult bookstore and rent a booth where the projector would be set up for you, uh-huh. or you could go to an adult theater where they would play these things and they would just play them one after the other with an intermission. Now, and, and again, that doesn't sound like much fun because you're going there to get a Woody and whack off in an auditorium in front of 200 other seats. That yeah. doesn't work too well for me either. No. So this brings us on film to 1970, or actually 1969. Uh, Andy Warhol made a film called Blue Movie, which had some very explicit sexual scenes in it. I've never actually seen it. Uh, but it's one of the things that comes up in these histories. And uh, Andy Warhol could get get away with this because at that time, anything Andy Warhol did was art mm-hmm. because Andy Warhol did it. And you know, if he wrote, if he painted a can of Campbell soup, that was art, okay? That, that's a uh, spot. So <laughs> if, he, if he made a film that showed full penetration and frontal nudity, that was art. Uh, just like if somebody painted that and put it on the wall of a museum, it was art. Sure. Uh, Again, it's not pornography because no one's whacking off to it in front of all of the other gallery visitors, right? Okay. Well, in uh, – let's see. It was – make sure I get the date right here. Um, yeah, in 1969, you also had Midnight Cowboy came out. And 
that was an explicit attempt to show that you could make a good film in the space of the X rating. They, they explicitly set out to have to get an X rating and to show that a film with an X rating could be a good film. Mm-hmm. Got a bunch of awards, got a bunch of attention. Um, then you had uh, Last Tango in Paris in 1972, uh, which wasn't quite as explicit as Midnight Cowboy, but it was in the same general class. It got an X rating, but was a well-considered film. Uh, but the flirtation of mainstream film, films with pornographic images also inspired some of the porn producers who were making these stag films and photo sets for uh, crappy magazines to wonder what they could do if they flirted with more Hollywood-like movie-making techniques and tried to make a little higher quality product on from their end. And so the first example of this was Deep Throat in 1972. Mm-hmm. And in order to see it, you had to go to one of these seedy uh, pornographic movie theaters. But it was wildly successful. And why? Because it's an hour, hour and a half long movie. I don't remember the, the exact running time, but it told a story mm-hmm. with an actual plot and with actual scenes that weren't sex scenes connecting the sex scenes so that there was a progression of things going on. So it was like a movie. And otherwise, the production was not that very good quality. It was still, you know, very much a product of this of the sex industry but it showed that something more interesting was possible and so after that you had uh in order the devil and miss jones behind the green door um which were higher quality um the devil and miss jones was very well regarded and roger ebert actually gave it a positive review it started a phenomenon that they called film chic of uh legitimate mainstream movie critics reviewing these porno films and it just snowballed uh because even though you had to go to an uh, an adult theater to see it it was more of an experience that you could sell to your girlfriend or wife that uh you know and it was an edgy thing that a couple could do if they wanted to show how spicy you know modern and you know forward looking they were and all uh and they were very successful and so more and more of them were made this was the golden age of porn and that's what basically caused it so you had these guys that had been porno producers hiring talent and uh, a lot of aspiring uh, screenwriters and lighting uh, specialists, uh, wardrobe plots. Because when you're paying $40,000 to rent your camera equipment, it makes some sense to spend a little coin on the rest of it too. Mm-hmm. Because film production ain't cheap. And finding people who can actually say their lines without being laughable about it, you know. So uh, some of these films. Uh, are to this day are actually regarded as pretty good movies uh, despite the fact that they're porn films but again it was the distribution though was a bottleneck because how do you see them you got to go to an adult theater uh, they're too long to do the booth in the back of the adult bookstore thing sure. uh, and legitimate theaters wouldn't go anywhere near them so that was the bottleneck until home video mm-hmm. was invented and that changed the world because when video rental shops started to pop up almost all of them had a back room and unlike the secret stash under the uh, counter 
that was fairly public. They were open about it. The cops knew it was there. There were places that had where they had problems because of it. They had to close the back room and stop doing it. Um, but for the most part, it reached a stable state where uh, you could rent these films or you could mail order them uh, if you if you found a, a, a link, you know, and then you would get coupons and uh, and you would get flyers for other producers that you could uh, patronize. So you could order these, get them in a brown envelope, watch them on your VCR. No one's the wiser. You don't have to worry about whether anyone sees you going into the downtown theater, uh, you know, sure. Sure. so... Uh, that became the primary distribution medium for pornographic film overnight. The adult theaters completely disappeared within a few years. There was, there was really no reason except nostalgia to go to one. Um, so, but the end of the golden age of porn came in the mid eighties and that was when videotape became good enough to be used as the primary recording medium. Uh, this was a world where, you know, like, as I said last week, your TV series uh, for broadcast on television were all filmed on 35 millimeter because videotape was uh, very awkward to edit. It was not very good. The equipment wasn't portable. Well, all of that was changing in the early 80s because of the home video boom. They were making so much of this equipment that it was becoming more technologically advanced very fast. And again, people are, you know, like to say that porn drives movies but what really happened it was porn drives technology rather but what really happened was technology drove the porn and so everyone well as soon as it became technically feasible people started producing the porn movies on video and the standards went because you're not paying 40 grand for your cameras anymore so you're not going to pay for the wardrobe artist and the set design and all that so yeah. it became more where the producer would rent a house and you would use whatever the owners of the house left behind as props and people would pretty much wear whatever they owned when they came on set yeah. and uh so it was a big step downhill uh from the the 70s and that's pretty much where things stayed until the mid 90s um, now you'll notice that I just ended two of these threads where, with, and that's where things stayed until the mid '90s. And what happened in the mid '90s was inter internet porn. Okay. And again, it wasn't that porn drove the creation of this. It's that technology reached a point before 1995. Most computers couldn't display a pornographic image. Or if they tried, the quality was so poor, it was more of a curiosity than something that you would use. Yeah. And it was in the, the mid-90s that the technology, uh, the, compressions, uh, the compression standards, the, uh, the display technology, and the internet delivery became just barely adequate to support mostly still film pornography delivery uh movies were still kind of a stretch unless you had a really good reason and uh the really good reason turned out to be fetish porn mm -hmm. because uh mainstream the mainstream distribution channel basically reached everybody with the same content so if you had some fringe interest then you rarely saw it in the the, the porn in the adult bookstore uh 
you might see that, that now the adult bookstore might actually have some fetish magazines, but you rarely saw it in film because it was, wasn't worth producing. You rarely saw uh, you, you rarely saw it in mainstream stuff. You, you, you never saw it with decent production values or I should probably say good production sure. values. Decent not being the right word there. Um, but that was what drove the first wave of, of Internet porn really was more fetishy stuff because computers couldn't really compete with print for mainstream porn. The image quality was crap. The delivery was slow and not very reliable. Uh, so, And also, uh, a computer is not a very convenient viewing tool to use for viewing porn. You can't take it to bed. You can't use it in the bathtub. You know, it's just not really uh, conducive to some of the ways people would prefer to, to sure. use their masturbation aids. Sure. Uh, but again, if you are uh, interested in something particular that wasn't depicted very often, then it was worth it to you to deal with the low the low resolution and the, the slow image delivery and all because you couldn't get it very often anywhere yeah. else. And uh, in the mid-70s, uh, they came out with uh, something called the RIM report that breathlessly said that 70% of the images on the internet, which then was Usenet, they didn't even have websites back then for, for distributing this stuff, uh, was uh, fetish imagery. And sensational crap that wasn't really true but that led to the passing of the communications decency act in 75 um but there was this thing called the first amendment and the cda was struck down by the supreme court uh about a year later so so this is where you were you had this barely adequate technology in computer land and the porn sites that existed had come up with ways to be paid uh, online payment with credit cards, uh, banner ads for promotion. Uh, they had invented all this stuff and were, and were using it to promote themselves and to, uh, you know, basically they did invent web marketing. Uh, that is probably the one case where I will admit that porn drove the technology because mm -hmm. the technology had to get good enough for porn to take an interest in it because you wouldn't have wanted to try to watch porn as it could be displayed on a computer in 1990. Yeah. I mean, it was a 16 color VGA. Yeah. Te I mean, Tetris. You, yeah. It, so, um, but you had the, this, this wedge with the, the fetish producers and into that gap stepped a guy named Brent Scott. Uh, and he founded a site called insects.com. Now, Brent had seen a hentai show in person, a live hentai show in Japan when he was in the service, uh, when he was in the army, and he was besotted. He was enthralled. But they did this little show where the waitress served them food, and then the guy came out and wrestled her to the ground and tore off her clothes and tied her up. And while while they were sitting there eating the food that she had served them and all, and he wanted to bring this art form to the United States, sure. but he found out that he couldn't because no one would publish it because of the guidelines that the whole porn industry was following to avoid having their shit uh, seized and all these prosecutions launched against them and everything. And. In the late 90s, uh, his life was falling apart. His marriage had failed, couldn't have had anything to do with the bondage studio and the attic and all the models coming through. But not that. For some no. reason, his wife left him. Yeah, for some other um, reason. She was probably just a bitch, right? Couldn't be that. <laughs> and he was 
And he was starting to realize that Carnegie Mellon was never going to give him tenure because something about his field of interest being bondage born and how it, you know, with society. Um, so he famously, as, as he has told the story, uh, had a big argument with the dean and stormed out of the dean's office at CMU saying, all right, then, if you won't let me educate your children, I will corrupt them. And CMU are the people who taught him how to do web design, oh, state God. of the art oh, in God. the 1990s. Oh, um, in, uh, so in late 1997, he decides to start a website. What he realized is that on the internet, there is no enforcement mechanism. They can't seize your shipments because there are no shipments to seize. At that time, particularly, they couldn't even prove someone had done business with you. Yeah. Uh, it was all completely private and oh, under wild, the table. Yeah, wild West. And, and yeah, this was the point where it became the Wild West. And, you know, until he came along, everyone had still pretty much been following those guidelines for printed porn by habit. And I'm sure that he tried to get his stuff published. It was one of the reasons he became a university professor was to try to put it under that, you know, if, if I do it this way, it's art. And so it's okay, you know, but art isn't porn. And what he wanted to do was create porn. Mm. It's, I got to give the guy credit for that. Just, yeah. So he okay. realizes that he can do whatever the fuck he wants. <laughs> and he does. Woo. So Sid Black, who would become one of the dominants who would work with both uh, insects and Hogtide and, and the other co company that I'll talk about in a minute uh, is on in a, in a documentary that I'll also talk about in a minute says in those early days when insects first came around, they, they did no advertising, no, no promotion. It was all word of mouth. The only way you found out this, the site existed was to hear it from one of the other users. And personally, I didn't even know it existed until after it had gone out of business. <laughs> I found out about it all this later. Um, but, uh, Sid was like, we didn't know who this guy was. It's like, for all we knew, he really was kidnapping girls and torturing them in his basement. Sure. You know, he, but his vision was more like to take, uh, you know, something like Ilsa Shewolf of the SS and actually film all the shit that they couldn't put in that movie because it was too graphic and extreme. Mm. And it did turn out, of course, he was paying his models well and uh, getting them to emote and, and all. So it was acting. Uh, but his vision was very gritty and very dark and very extreme. And uh, and he did whatever the fuck he wanted. And the other producers in that line of industry at that time, there was a guy named Peter Ackworth who had a site called Hogtide, uh, who was doing pretty well for himself. Uh, and he took note. And some of those relaxed their standards a bit, but none of them ever became quite as extreme as insects. And I think part of that was because what insects was doing was so extreme, it was actually off-putting to a lot of people. And it was also the, th the feeling that it was the Wild West, but you know, the Wild West came to an end. And so everybody was wondering if a shoe was going to drop and everyone was pretty sure if it did, it was gonna fall on insects first, which it did. But anyway, um, <laughs> what you the think? way that I know about, <laughs> uh, now the way I know about uh, about this is there is a fantastic documentary called Graphic Sexual Horror that was made after the site closed by two of the women who worked on it, uh, 
for most of the time it, it existed. And it does a fantastic job of laying out how it came about, how and why Brent founded it, the wacky stuff that they did. Also, Brent going too far in some ways. They have a whole section on how the money corrupted the whole idea of whether there was really consent. Does the safe word really mean anything if you're afraid you'll never be invited to come back if you use it? Uh, and then, of course, how it got shut down. So uh, Brent did whatever the fuck he wanted for seven years. And in, in, in 2005, uh, he got shut down. But the way that happened was very insidious. Um, Throughout the uh, the industry, people were noticing it was getting hard to find credit card processors who would work with them. And without a credit card processor, you couldn't get paid because uh, that's how you got paid. If you were a web service, someone puts their credit card number in your computer and you can run a transaction. Well, insects lost three credit card servicers in a row and were having to go to sketchy banks in the Far East. Uh, and finally, one of his bankers showed him the national security letter. The Department of Justice oh, was sending his wow. bankers secret letters. It was illegal to show this letter to anybody saying that the site was promoting terrorism and that they had to stop doing business with them. This was under the Patriot Act. Now, Fuck, the terrorists won. Yeah, Bourne was funding terrorism. God damn now, it. If you'll recall, when the Patriot Act was passed, they people who passed it, Pinky swore on a stack of Bibles that it would never, ever, ever, ever be used except against the worst of the very baddest bad guys. Well, after Brent's uh, banker showed him the letter and he realized what was going on, he folded the site. They put up a notice and said, this is what happened, uh, and we are not going to put up a fight uh, that we can't win against an entity like the government that is so up. We would probably win it if we did because we know we are in the right. This is a clear illegal abuse of the law, but I, I, I am not going to be the person who fights this. Now, before I go on, let's talk a little bit about Insects' business model and what he had going. Insects was very different from most other porn sites. They didn't sell their stuff a la carte. If you wanted to do business with Insects, you bought a ticket, $60, and it gave you access for one month to the entire site, the archives, the current material, everything. Now, you might wonder why someone wouldn't just wait till December, spend 60 bucks, scarf everything up, and wait another year. The reason was because a lot of their content was interactive. They had, it, when, when you had them in the browser, you didn't just have the picture coming in. You also had controls. You could type in a message and it would be read by a robotic voice in the studio or projected on the wall, or sometimes they would have it hooked up to the machines, you know, the, you know, like if there was vibrators involved or sure. electroshock devices, you would have like the, the users, the, the, the guys out oh, on their laptop whoa. computers whacking off. Whoa. That's bad So, and yeah, well, obviously a lot of people thought so because in the documentary, they say that they had uh, 130,000 users when they folded the site up. Now, 130,000 users times $60 is between seven and $8 million a month. 
In the 90s and 2000s. In, in the 90s and early aughts. Uh, if you figure that his uh, user base probably increased linearly, then multiply by seven years, divide by two, you figure he probably made between two and $300 million. <laughs> so I can see why he wasn't all that concerned with, with you know, keeping it. the site online at, just you know, fuck it, going through a bunch here. of shit. I'm going to the Bahamas. Yeah. Fuck all y'all. <laughs> So now if you look at the economics though, remember what I said was the people who are actually being filmed don't get the money. Uh, now Brent paid his people what was considered very generously. And the thing they said, you know, their, their, their base rate was a thousand dollars a day if you were a model. Um, and they would pay more if they were going to do something really extreme to you. I mean, cause a lot of their models took some pretty serious beatings and shit. It went, but yeah, I mean, they were very careful that it was all stuff that would heal, but, it might take a couple of weeks yeah. for that to happen. And so you're in for an experience. Some of their models said that they did it just to prove they could survive the experience. Wow. And, you know, th there's a lot about that in the documentary. I can't recommend th that documentary highly enough okay. because there's just a lot. It, that film, more than anything else, filled in a lot of the blanks for me as to how all of this ended up happening because most people aren't aware of how – uh, insects is one of the most important things that ever happened to porn in the history of pornography. But anyway, uh, so they, they, they might have 20 people on set. There were articles back in the day by people who visited the, the set and watched insects. And they would have lighting people and wardrobe people and makeup and all this stuff that you would normally see in the movie shoot because Brent could afford it. Mm -hmm. Say you're paying 20 people $1,000 a day and you do this for a month. That's what six hundred thousand dollars. That's a lot less than seven million. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so, yeah. so you know, he's still pocket. I mean, he can spend money on him. He had a full time metalworking guy who appears in the documentary. A what? And you know, the guy who made like metal bondage toys, Holy you know, like manacles and shit. Full -time he had a full time fucking... guy to do metalwork. That's balling. A full-time fucking <laughs> welder or metallurgist—that's yeah. next level. But, That's next level pimping. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. The uh, no, oh, it's like man, it was Jurassic sex. No expense was spared. Yeah, and you can. I've seen a few clips of, of things, and it's sure. like the sets. You know, he had this gritty industrial thing. He wanted it to look like the kind of place that a, a guy might actually take. Uh, Sure. A, a naked woman and do this stuff to her sure. where you could have, you know, we're screaming doesn't matter and stuff like that. Sure. Um, so at one point, uh, he bought a farm in upstate New York so that he could do outdoor shit. Um, you know, it was, it, that was just like nothing, you yeah. know? Um, but anyway, so, so he gets shut down and that's where the baton passes to Peter Ackworth. And there are two, really funny stories about kink.com the first is how he shut down the department of justice and that whole thing that shut down insects uh, after they shut down insects they started going after other porn producers and it became clear that they weren't going to stop with the really really bad guys having set their precedent they were going to work their way up to the entire porn industry and shut everything down this was they had found their secret weapon but, because but, they had a why? lousy record with actual obscenity prosecutions so why what what was behind all of this why were they 
Well, you know, it's like it's like busting, it's like busting drug selling. Uh, it's like selling busting drug selling gangs because you know the pharmaceutical industry is giving them kickbacks saying, "Hey, stop them from dealing heroin so they can only buy oxycotton." Like I, I mean, that's horrible, but like I, at least I like rationally understand it. Why are they knocking well, out the, all the porn? What's the? Because there's a lot of Puritans? people in the United States who are deeply offended at the idea that anyone is having more fun than they are yeah they're called puritans yeah and that's <laughs> i mean you gotta you gotta think of you know, the kind of yeah. guy who gets a law degree and goes to work for the department of justice is probably uh, having you don't make, vanilla sex yeah you don't make as much money working for doj as you do working for a law firm especially the kind of law firm that might be hired by the organized crime to defend their sex shop operation yeah, yeah. so they're doing this out of idealism now assholes yeah they're assholes okay uh so anyway peter ackworth at this point has several going websites that are doing pretty well uh and he goes to his and he he hears because the other thing you get the sense of in the graphic sexual horror is several of these people ackworth appears in the documentary sid black appears brent scott himself appears um and you get the sense that these guys all know one another yeah, you know, that this this was a, a little group of people who, even though they were competitors, uh, they like you know they knew they knew each other. Sure. They were in contact, and sure. so Brent told everybody what happened, and Peter Ackworth proactively went to his bankers, and said, "Look, I know you're going to be getting one of these letters. I'm sure of it. It's bullshit. It's illegal as hell. What I need to know from you is what do you need from me to have the confidence to tell them they're full of shit." and that you're not going to keep their letter secret and you're, we're going to drag it into the light of day if they insist on doing this uh and and we're going to fight it what do i need from you and what these bankers who didn't have any kind of primary interest in the sex industry except that they liked the color of its money was a new set of guidelines remember those so the wild west became the not so wild list. Okay. Uh, so they developed a bunch of requirements, and they were different than the than the guidelines that had been in the uh, the print and film porn industries. Uh, one thing they required, almost everything was about film. Now, no one does still photography except to promote their films, and the. One of the requirements was an entry in an exit interview. So you could tell that the model knew what she was about mm -hmm. to get into and afterward that she was okay with it and, and that it had been okay. Uh, there was a whole bunch of things that you couldn't film. Uh, there was a whole bunch of conditions. Like if the model started crying, the shoot had to come to an end. Okay. Full stop. Um, things like that. But the, uh, the bankers set these and in – there's another documentary called Kink about kink.com, which came later. And it's not nearly as good as graphic sexual horror, but uh, it has its interesting moments. And one of them is Ackworth uh, grumbling that the uh, the billers are a moving target. You never know what's going to be allowed. They won't allow us to do tentacle porn because they think it's bestiality. And that's like, okay. Didn't some politician get caught Googling or he accidentally tweeted what he meant to Google search. It was like back in 2016. Didn't some politician or journalist accidentally tweet what he thought was a Google search? And it was for like tentacle porn? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I want to say that was like a meme for like a couple weeks. It might have been. 
but anyway, that that was that was the thing. But the King documentary isn't very good. For one thing, like I said, there's two funny stories about King. One I'm in the middle of, and one I'm about to tell. And neither sure. of them are really in the documentary about King.com. All right. So, so anyway, Ackworth goes to his bankers, and they come up with a set of guidelines. Go up again, you know. They you know, so Brent Scott fled the field of battle. Ackworth comes in and saves the day. Okay, he he basically saved the bondage porn industry, uh, which basically meant he saved the porn industry. And at that point, a bunch of the previously independent operators sold out to him. So people who had had their own websites, their own payment, and their own billing systems, and, and all their own distribution, their own uh, production, promotional, all just sold out and went to work for Peter Ackworth and became subsites under the kink.com rubric. So not, now he's got like 20 or 30 sites, including, incidentally, Brent Scott and the old insects crew. He doesn't do it, the things as elaborate. He's got to follow the new guidelines, but he went back to producing porn. Now, that's the first funny story is about how Peter Ackworth saved the porn industry by doing doing his little thing. The second is how he saved the San Francisco Armory. And the funniest thing about that story is that he couldn't have done it without the help of George Lucas. What the fuck? All right. Let's go. The San, Francis- the San Francisco Armory is a 200,000 square foot building built in the style of a Moorish castle in the middle of the Mission District in San Francisco. It's a residential neighborhood. There's this huge 200,000 square foot black elephant. It's okay. So the uh, it was built for the California National Guard around 1910, and it was abandoned by them in 1970 because it was completely obsolete for their purposes by this time. Now, it be, so it became an eyesore. It became this white elephant on the real estate market. Um, it was way out of code. It was so far out of code, it would have cost a fortune to fix this building up. So making it into condos or apartments or, or housing was simply not cost effective. Every once in a while, an industry would express interest in it uh, because it's a large open space and it's convenient to shipping uh, venues in the middle of one of the largest cities in west coast and all and the nimbies would come down out and shoot it down because san francisco is the not in my backyard capital of the observable universe yeah and so no matter what industry it was the whole neighborhood would turn up and say they don't want the traffic they don't want the pollution they don't want all these workers coming in and out that you know blah 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 and they would shoot it down until 1982 when george lucas showed up he needed a big interior space where he could hang models of spaceships and blow them up. And it turns out that the armory has an attached parade ground, a covered parade ground with a large interior field. The ceiling is like 40 or 50 feet high. In fact, until recently, it may still even be, it was the largest unsupported enclosed space in the state of California. Because I guess nobody had built a dome stadium. Sure. Um, so George Lucas shows up and asks for a zoning variance to film a movie there. And this time the locals are like, well, movies are cool and it's Star Wars. And so there wasn't a lot of resistance and there wasn't going to be a lot of traffic or industrial shit going on. So he got his zoning variance and he filmed the special effects for Empire Strikes Back there. Okay. And then, and then he went away and it was abandoned again until Peter Ackworth came along 
in 2005. Now, Ackworth has just made arrangements by which he is going to pretty much own the entire porn industry. And he was already out of space in his old studio, so he needed a bigger place. Well, he realizes that the armory is a large space that is dirt cheap because of what it is and the condition it's in. But what is it is, a warren of dusty little dungeon-like spaces that... What is it better than uh, an old fucking castle? Yeah, so... He plops down $14.5 million in cash and buys the building, <laughs> which is actually dirt cheap Fuck. for a building that size on a square foot front. basis. Yeah. And because it's already zoned for a movie studio, one of the things he did for research is he found out that California zoning law does not make a distinction between a porn studio and any other kind of film studio. It's zoned for film he can film there so he's doing that within a couple of weeks and of course the neighbors at first are a little not too happy about this but they went to a lot of trouble to be good neighbors to to uh make a positive impression with the community they arranged the entire building so that you could get to the parade ground without passing any of the porn stuff so that they could use the parade ground for public functions and, and rent it out and do things like uh skating uh use it for skating night and have hockey matches and I don't know what else, you know, cause it had stands. Uh, so it was a very useful space. Um, and they were very careful about their production because because the neighbors were like there's going to be people you know porn at you know naked people drifting out onto the street they were very careful about this there was no sign out front yeah. uh the only the only hint that you had of what was going on in this building is there's no sign but uh, the three visible corners in the, on the front and side of the building had huge flagpoles one of them was flying the american flag one of them was flying the flag of the state of California, and the other one was flying the gay pride flag. Okay, but I mean, you're in the middle of San <laughs> the, the Fran. You're in the middle of San Fran. That's that's that. that, that no one would bat yeah. an eye, right? That you blend right in. No. you're in North Georgia. Uh, that was people are going to be shooting at that you. Was, yeah, that was well. That was the idea is, is to, to, to blend in, and so they were very careful about uh, traffic coming and going to to make it circumspect and all. So. Uh, he poured millions of dollars into bringing the building up to code, upgrading it, fixing things. The, the entire basement was flooded because there's actually a San Francisco River. The only place that you can get to the San Francisco River now is in the basement of the armory building. There's there's a it's 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 been built over for the entire rest of its length, uh, and it has flooded the basement. Uh, so. For years, he pours money into the building, bringing bringing different spaces up to code, so that there's like workrooms for uh, for models to do the, the phone sex thing. There's uh, spaces where the the models can live. He he devoted the entire top floor uh, to the local fetish community. He built a space called the upper floor and just told the local uh, fetish people, "Look, here is a nice uh, spiffed up space that you can use with privacy, and uh, you know, to to sort of schmooze them." And uh, that you know that was the situation until uh, roughly 2018. And what finally ended kink.com being at the armory was California was threatening to pass a law requiring porn uh, uh, porn shoots to use condoms. What? 
Did it cut out? And it, it just. You, are you back, Roger? It, the internet cut out. Roger. That might be the perfect segue into another episode. We had some technical difficulties as soon as we insulted the gods of California for making them use condoms. <laughs> it cut out. I mean, it's. I don't have to explain it. All it's, it's going to be in the video. Yeah. It cut out as soon as you said that. There's just some Puritan at Langley or Fort Meade at the NSA just going, all right, I've had enough of this. <laughs> <laughs> so, End it now. Okay. So anyway, they, they decided that was not going to go for – no one was going to buy their product if they had to do that. Yeah. So they basically picked up and moved their entire operation to Las Vegas. Uh, and uh, last year they sold the building for $65 million. But the thing is now the building is fixed up. It's been brought up to code. There's a lot of it that is already converted to living spaces and stuff. So now it's practical to turn it into normal office space or to use or, or to build condominiums or apartments there or whatever. So for practical purposes, the building has been saved uh, and Kink has just moved on. Now, the sad thing, though, is that while Kink was operating out of the armory, they had a tour for 25 bucks a head. You could take a tour of the building, and it was actually as as they and I took this tour myself uh, a few years ago, yeah. one of my trips to San Francisco, yeah. and it was fucking hilarious, because um, <laughs> they they warn you at the beginning of the tour we are going to be touring a operating porn studio, and so you might see something on the course of this tour. As it turned out, we didn't, but uh, you got to go see all of the sets and all of the toys and all of the props and stuff and it's like um you know it's really weird to see like a whole wall of dildos graduated in size (laughs) 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 you know i mean because they had a huge carpentry shop and a huge metalworking shop um and uh you know it was just because again they, they there was so much money that they could pour it into whatever they thought they needed yeah and uh it was it was just and the uh they have a sense of humor about it. The guy who gave us the tour was himself uh, affecting a very flaming gay personality and, sure. and was kind of hamming it up. Sure. Um, but uh, they still have the Armory tour, but it's probably not nearly as much fun now. You don't have the 55-gallon drums of personal lubricant anymore. Um. <laughs> well, then, then is it even worth it? If you can't have 55-gallon drums of lubricant, why the fuck am I buying this ticket? <laughs> So, yeah, I don't know. It, it was worth 25 bucks back in the day, though. But um, I'm sure the building is anyway, still used because it's but, fucking built like a castle. Sturdy yeah, as fuck. And so, so, so anyway, it, the armory is going on to other uses. But that brings us to the present day. Hmm. And uh, what is the current state of the porn industry? And, well, you've got kink.com pretty much owns the fetish the fetish porn industry now you see a few operators advertising things that break the guidelines they almost always don't accept credit cards and have weird alternate uh, payment methods they want like amazon gift cards or bitcoin or something uh or they're located in eastern europe and use some sketchy bank located there to process their their finances um Now, the problem is the mainstream producers are going extinct because they still have trouble competing with – well, the print is is going extinct too. But uh, the problem is that 
even when they can monetize the content they make, there's too much competition. They're competing against their own back catalog going back to 1953. They're competing against each other in a shrinking market, and they're competing against their own product being rebroadcast by the tube sites, the YouTube-like sites that do porn. And they get away with, with pirating the stuff outright because, well, we don't we have any control over what people upload to our YouTube-like site. They monetize it with ads, and it's up to the producers to monitor what's been uploaded and and send takedown notices. And the porn producers don't have the resources to do that. The studios do, but these small guys don't. And so what's happening now is actually the porn industry is in a lot of trouble. There's uh, a a canard going around that, you know, the, the porn is like some ridiculous percent of internet traffic and it isn't anymore that's now sites like netflix and amazon prime and and youtube we are going that are, backwards that, as a society then yeah well that's that's what's happening as we speak though where where it's going is is that uh yes it's easier than ever to get access to porn but the distribution cycle has been broken because there's no way for the content creators to, to monetize so you don't have that feedback where the end user is subsidizing the production anymore and that's basically broken the system so uh, and i don't know how it's going to stable out at this point uh that's just where it is and it's been pretty much since you know, 2010 or so uh has been drifting in that direction um uh, and again it's technology that did that it became too easy to broadcast video over the internet and that's what's made the tube sites uh, viable, and uh, it's, it's basically what's uh, resulted in all of this extra competition, and, and no one has really come up with a, a compelling model. Kink.com is still doing the interactive stuff like Insects Invented. They're not doing as much or it's not as extreme, but that's one of their draws to get people to come back and spend money. Um, but again, uh, that whole golden age thing where you know you can walk into any video store and get this high quality product and john you know roger ebert reviewed it and all eh, that's done up so what's next what's the future well you know this i i honestly don't know i don't think that anything is visible yet i mean uh there's a lot of people who think it'll be artificial reality you know uh, virtual reality yeah and i I don't see it I, for the same reason that you wouldn't set up a film projector. I don't see people putting on goggles and stumbling around the meat space room. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, uh, and plus, you know, they're frozen out of all the, the, the hottest markets too. You got to remember that most people think Facebook is the internet. They don't allow porn. Uh, the Apple doesn't allow porn in the app store. Uh, Google allows you to put third party apps that might be porn on their phones but you can't do it through Google Play. You have to go to a third party. Um, and I don't know about you, but I'm not going to put some sketchy APK file that I don't know where it came from on my Android phone. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, there is no, yeah, there are no porn apps. Yeah, you're, you're right. I was going to say, I mean, Instagram isn't porn, but I mean, I was gonna, I was thinking this the other day. You ever seen those? Like, maybe it's just my demographic. You ever seen just like endless like you're scrolling? There's just advertisements for like yoga pants, but there's so many times where I watch. You know the movie They Live, and you put on the yeah, 
I swear to God, whenever I'm on Instagram, I delete it. I, I use it to upload my podcast, and then I delete it, and I re-download it the next day. I delete Instagram <laughs> and Facebook. I'm not bullshitting you. Every 24 hours, I delete them, upload my podcast, delete them, because it's cancer. That being said, when I'm on it, it feels like I have the They Live glasses on, because I look at all these. It's like, look at these yoga pants. Look at this new. Look at these new Skechers. You put on the glasses. All it is is there's girls doing just some sort of like fucking like you know just so they're doing some position they're doing some like ass club but oh, maybe they have a barbell no it's porn look at my new sneakers no it's porn oh my god look at the mm-hmm. seashell I found no look at my ass that's all look at this ice cream cone I'm like I'm holding it I'm like cupping it and I'm like it's porn it's just yeah. porn yeah well and and the and the payoff that they get is when you click on the link and that and that monetizes it for them yeah. half the time the picture doesn't even have anything to do with the caption that's telling you what what you'll get if you click the link it's just so, some yeah, hot right girl that. that's it's just some hot girl with huge tits with like perfect makeup and it's like click here for mouthwash and you're like oh mouthwash okay yeah Bastard. so so the whole the whole thing is really a mess at the moment and uh I would be lying if I said I had any idea where it's going. Um, yeah. So yeah, I had enough trouble figuring out how it got here. <laughs> yeah, that was a brilliant presentation, man. Have you have you, have you thought about? I mean, you could. I think you could do like a fucking TED talk or something, man. That was brilliant. That was that was brilliant. I should have paid you for that. That was fucking. That was amazing, dude. That was legitimately like. I thought I was gonna be like laughing at like boobs the whole time. I came in here and sat. I, was, I just fucking watched a documentary. I forgot that you're on my podcast. A couple times I was like, "Who's that in the top right corner?" I was like, oh, "That's my dumbass." That was legitimately yeah. impressive, Roger. Like, t- t- well, kudos, thanks. kudos. Uh, no, really. I sent, my, I sent my dad a link to the last one, and uh, he he said that it looked like a uh, well, like a documentary, and uh, that he learned stuff. Yeah, dude. <laughs> from, I had dude, the tubes. My mom's a nurse. My mom's a nurse, and she was like, "That was an interesting vacuum." Like, I never knew what a vacuum tube was. I was like, "Neither did I." <laughs> Roger, dude, you're they only- you're good, man. You need a fucking. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not monetized. I'd give you a kickback, but I'm unfortunately I'm not. It's you. Well, I'll pra- but you're giving me a good opportunity to practice. No, dude, please, please, fucking use my podcast as your open mic. Just come up here, and once you get really going, and you got you're good for like a season finale or a special. Ditch me and just go to Netflix or go to a TED Talk and cash it in and leave me in the dust, dude. I, I, I'm, I'll happily be used. It's fine. <laughs> It, it, it all comes down to who's going to publish it and how, how you're going to monetize it and all that stuff. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I had this insight about porn is like the whole thing with my novel yeah. uh, is, is that you have to get it to people and they have to have a way to get money to you in order and to, to thank you for creating it. And uh, a lot of the mechanisms for that have been transient and haven't worked very well and mechanisms that worked for a while have broken uh or ceased to exist you know it's like like the days when you would go hawk your pamphlets on the street corner and that that was a big thing for 150 years yeah and then it was nothing are you getting are you getting payments through you're getting payments through amazon right yeah well if you if you buy the the a a copy of the ebook then yeah i get a royalty on that uh that that's a big chunk of it. I still have a tip jar. In the beginning, it was all the tip jar. Yeah. Uh, now I, I get. Uh, incidentally, if you buy a paper copy, uh, go to Lulu.com and buy it from them instead of from Amazon because I get like five times as much money. Um, they have to charge the same 
because the the agreement that allows me to have an ISBN and to publish a print book and be listed in bookstore catalogs requires that everyone have the same list price. And with Amazon, uh, after they take their cut, I make like a dollar fifty. But Lulu's base price to print a copy is like eight ninety five, and I get like six dollars instead That's of awesome. you know because you know, because the whole book industry chunk of that is is cut out. You're dealing directly with the publisher there. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, even though I make less money per sale, I make more money from Amazon because everyone sees Amazon. Well, I mean, and, I look at how like when I first read it in 2016, I didn't even. This sounds like a total like bullshit. But I I didn't know there was a tip. I just found it. I was like, oh cool, look at this story. I didn't yeah. see any payment. I was just. And then when I emailed you and I was like, we come on my podcast, and you're like, sure. I made sure to go to Amazon. I found it, and yeah. I had no qualms with buying it, mainly because it's Amazon. I don't have to pull up my credit card and put on my glass. Okay, what is my number? It's just I go to Amazon. I have an account. Yeah. One click. I'll buy it. I didn't even look at the price. I was like, I don't give a shit. I love this book. So, I mean, it's... Yeah. That's I appreciate what, that. Yeah the, yeah, the tip jar is only on localroger.com. That's what I mean. My, is, my is, website. Yeah. And, and nobody does personal websites anymore. That's nobody what I'm saying. Nobody does blogs it's, anymore. You got you to gotta so work that, with what's out there, and it, that's Amazon. And... Yeah, and Facebook and Amazon and all, they have their own rules about how you're allowed to monetize stuff on their site. So, you know, because they're private. They can they can impose all kinds of weird rules if they want to, and they do. So it's like, personally, I don't Facebook. I have a Facebook account, which I have Can't mainly you. to tie up the name Local Roger, and uh, I logged into it like twice. Yeah, um, I log in and drop my podcast, and then I delete it. <laughs> I swear to God, every day, I fucking delete it. I'm like, get that cancer patch off my phone. Cause it it'll suck your brain. <laughs> Come here. Look how inadequate you are. Look how imperfect you are. I'm like, fuck that. Bring them on my phone. Yeah. I give them the goods, and then I get them right off. And I'm like, y'all are fe- that's fentanyl. Get away from me. Cancer. <laughs> you fucking addicted me. Is. It is. Yeah. It is. I'm very. I'm not kidding. Um, I'm very firm about that. I I kick it the fuck off my phone every day. Yeah. Well, my story with Facebook was that I I had uh, about ten years ago. I or, yeah. It was that long. It was a couple of years after Facebook started. One of my old high school friends who uh, had moved out uh, after Katrina, and I hadn't seen him, he emailed me and said, man, uh, join Facebook and friend me, and and we can hang out. So I traded the account, and I went and I friended Patrick and looked around a little bit, and I, eh, whatever, logged off. So the next day, I logged in, looked around a little, didn't see anything too exciting. I logged off. And like 15 minutes later, I get this email from Facebook. Local Roger, we noticed that you logged in and didn't do anything. Here are some interesting suggestions. So I nope. went, went over to Corrosion and, and said, guys, I just got the weirdest email from Facebook. It's like they made a record of the fact that I logged in even though I didn't do anything. And they're all like, oh, yeah, man, they make a record of everything you do, everything you click, everything you read, everything you do. They make records of everything. So that they, And I'm like, this is not a service I need in my life. Nope. Nope. If, so, if it's free, just, <laughs> if it's free, you're the product, right? Isn't that the quote? If it's yeah. free, you're the yes. product. People are like, Mark That's Zuckerberg sold, sold my data. Mark Zuckerberg gave you server time, gave you a user interface, gave you a neat little app with animations and little noises. It lets you go on there and Facebook and lets you do. He's giving you that dopamine drip. Look at my new house. Look at my new driveway. Look at my tits. Look at my new grandson. Yeah, you're the mm-hmm. you, you are the product. You don't. The, the cow doesn't the cow can't look at the fucking the slaughterhouse and be like hey you know as you're eating the free corn and you have the free bed and you go 
I think they're cutting us up. Well, that's different because you're forced to be there. But let's imagine let's imagine you were allowed to walk in or out of the slaughterhouse. Yeah, you're allowed to go in there, man. There's a roof. You get away from the rain. They got corn. It's at a cost. You're walking right into those like the blades. Pink, it's like the Pink Floyd song, Sheep. Yeah. Yeah. It's, dude, it's, I don't know, man. I don't know. It's, yeah. It's weird. And I still get prompts every day. I'm on my... I think I'm on my eighth Facebook account from 2005 until now. I just nuke them. I would go in. You get it's. There's, I'd go in. And you have to find out how to delete it first, deactivate it, and then eventually I'd come back. And the yeah. most recent one was starting the podcast. I was like, oh, I need to get back on. But one of my friends who's been on Facebook since like 2004 was like, "Glad to have you back, Tom." And I just thought of like the Matrix line. I was like, "This is the 16th iteration." <laughs> just yield back in. Yeah. But, Dude, I work at a liquor store, man, and they have shelves in the back, and and you know where all this fucking stock is, and it's the easiest way to know what's missing is you just go, you know, it's a ten by twenty foot stock room. You just go, take your phone, just take 10, 20 pictures in a circle, so you know what's there, and then you can walk out onto like the five thousand square foot huge warehouse. You walk around, you know, you see everything missing, but you know you don't have it. Then don't write it down. But you know you have Jack Daniels in the back one, right? It's crude. It's simple. Whatever. Point being <laughs> is now several days a week I have tons of pictures of liquor on my phone. Whatever. I'm thirty. I'm thirty years old though, right? It's it's all right. I look like a crazy person. I know that I've got, you know, probably by now I've got, you know, you just gotta scroll back a couple days and look, there we are, just a couple days, and it's just, I don't know what that margarita mix, tonic, oh, yeah. all sorts of shit. Yeah, it's. Yeah, it's point is is so like I said, I don't post anything on Instagram or Facebook aside from links to my podcast. And if I have a thumbnail, which is just a screen grab of what I do is I when I get a thumbnail, how I make my thumbnails, I open the video, click on a random spot, move the mouse so everything fades away, and then ching screenshot. That's all. So there's no point being. I don't post pictures. I now get advertisements on Instagram on Facebook for the specific bottles that I photograph. And I don't even oh, yeah. upload, but I know because when I do upload, I give them access to my photos. I get I get I get fucking advertisements for Grey Goose, for Quantro, for Dizarono, for Hennessy. Dude, I I haven't, I haven't I, drank in 4 years. <laughs> I can I, I have a I have a similar story about Google of all people. Yeah. So, my wife calls me about maybe eight years ago uh says or she sends me an email says by the way uh is what's your google avatar is that the causeway and i'm like my google avatar i don't have a google avatar oh, she says, sure you do she takes a screenshot and sends it to me and there's this frame from a, a youtube video that i uploaded now i've only ever uploaded two youtube videos in my entire life and it was back when it was youtube before google bought them and they were time lapses of my drive across the causeway. So it starts at night and the sun gradually rises. And it's kind of cool. I set one of them to music. Um, and, and at the time, I actually had to use a laptop computer and a webcam. And I had the software running on the floorboard and all. Uh, so anyway, when Google you – know, so, so my wife actually has a Google account. So, so when she – uh, goes to send me an email or I sent her an email and she goes to read it in Gmail. Google wants an avatar for me. Mm -hmm. So 
I have never uploaded a picture of myself to any of the sites that I have ever been a member of, including Google. I have the YouTube account. The only two videos I have ever uploaded are these time-lapse driving photos across the bridge. They went and took a still from one of those photos and made it my avatar because they couldn't find another photograph associated with any of my accounts. And to this day, I didn't change it because I wanted to remember that they did an asshole thing like that. Remember. It's like, it's like it's prime minister like moving the fingers for the book. Don't do that again. It's, it's here, Roger, we got you an avatar. So, Don't do that again. It's, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm like, seriously? Um, yeah. was, and it was taken from inside your car, the video you took? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was taken through the windshield. What if you can enhance the photo and you find that what they actually used was a reflection of your face? It was on the other side of the windshield. It's it's not. Just just <laughs> just entertain my stupid idea, Roger. God damn it! Where's your imagination? <laughs> you you no. like you you change the the darkness, the black point. You shift the clarity and the highlights. Get rid of the contrast. Reduce the exposure. And you're like, motherfucker. There's just like a crude outline of your face, and you're like. We're already here. That, that camera in. didn't have enough. That camera didn't have enough color resolution to do that. This no, was like tw- two thousand seven. They'll find it. They'll find it. Those so. bastards will. Yeah, man. <laughs> it's there's going to be a wild west of VR, and then it's going to slowly get taken over and be yeah. boring. It's going to start. I, I, I don't. I, I don't see VR ever becoming the the, the thing. I, I I see why some people think it will, but I just think it's too inconvenient. Uh, I mean, I've actually played with the vr helmet uh you know with my phone stuck in it and all and and it's like it's cool you know for a few times but to actually uh experience you know to to use that for like an experience that's going to last an hour or an hour and a half uh is not something i would want to do very often uh you know, it, it, it's just it's 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 like you know where do you go because you you're effectively blind to the outside world while you're doing this. Yeah. So what's the usefulness of being able to have the virt- the illusion of virtually walking around? Yeah. That yeah, you know, you're gonna walk right into your refrigerator yeah. if you try you, that. I mean, it's or, not gonna work. Or you gotta so, lock the doors because you, you're like I'm yeah. cutting myself off. I don't I don't know if someone's breaking in and I'm you know, I'm like, just fighting orcs or something like you know and it's yeah. I mean, I just, I just, I see it as, as being a novelty. It's something that you might do occasionally, more likely just once or twice. Um, and, and I don't see it being a major entertainment. It's just like 3D, uh, well, for one thing, holography. You know, 3D, like in a tank, was supposed to be the big thing when it's done. And well, first of all, we still you know, can't really do it in a practical sense, but it's not really as practical as science fiction writers thought it was compared to watching on a screen. 3D home TV turned out not to be a thing because you got to put glasses on mm-hmm. or, yeah, or, or you can't see it. So it's, it's just there's there, you know, th- things have to be convenient as well. This is one of the reasons when the porn thing started on the Internet that it mainly only took off in the fetish communities and all because a computer, especially in 1995, was not a very convenient device to what to use to view porn. So that has a lot to do with it um i mean i actually had one of my readers 
back back in the earliest days after I put it on corrosion and I was collecting you know collecting emails and I had an email from a woman who said please come out with a version of this printed on paper so I can read it in the bathtub Jesus Jesus it's what a weird what the fuck yeah <laughs> I got some interesting emails over that, by the way. Yeah, yeah I believe. What do you think I found out so much about porn? Yeah, that touche, touche. I just thought you were a scholar and a gentleman, but I guess that makes sense as well. Just people, just yeah. It's you know, I think VR. I think VR will take off if there can be something where you just press a button or it's just an app and it's like full immersion. I mean, dystopian reality aside, let's say you get some Neuralink implant. 10th generation 20th well, 2040 that's just, what it, that, that's what it's going to take is it's going to have to be direct neural interface and there's going to have immersion. to be some mechanism where you can quickly slip out of it if you need to attend to the real world yep, yep. and we are nowhere near no 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 we're, no like we're that. not right now we're at the right now we're at the suitcase size cell phones and it's it's yeah. going to be exciting to watch nonetheless it's like you know the ride's going to be fun but yeah, yeah it's that's what it'll have to be one press full immersion you can lay down and but move yeah. around in it smells sights well and and again what made what made porn practical uh as a video me you know as, as video medium for computers was really cell phones and tablets mm -hmm. because now you can see this little, stuff little porn box it, you can carry it with yep you can watch it in the bathtub if you want yeah, just, you can you know yeah. whatever uh and but that wasn't the case until about 10 years ago really can you, so, can you imagine? now personally, I'm the, I'm the kind of guy. It's like the idea of watching a movie on my cell phone is a complete like you you've got to be fucking kidding me. I would never do that. It would just be I'm you know sitting here like this for an hour and a half. Uh -uh. I've done it. My eyesight is already bad. Enough. I've done it hungover. <laughs> I've done it hungover, and like don't want to get out of bed. I'm just like oh, I just need to pass the time. You find a pirated movie and you just. <laughs> You know, you kind of, uh, you just kind of watch it, yeah. But yeah, if you're gonna invest now, I would, the two I would, hours, I would yeah. much rather put it on the TV set, big kick TV, back and, crank up the music, you know, enjoy it. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, and and again, that's another thing about VR is VR is a solitary experience. I mean, even if you are doing VR where there's other people in the simulation, that's not the same mm -hmm. as as being together in meets. But even even if the other guys on the other side of the room. That that's a really strange Not way of being together with someone, yeah. you know. Uh, for the same thing, I'm really not impressed by the people who think cyber sex will become a thing, despite the fact that phone sex was at one time. Uh, it, it, it's just the the boosters have not caught up with the negative. No no one looks at the negatives on stuff. I have this thing at work. Uh, with the argument between technicians and engineers. The engineers are about making stuff work. And technicians don't realize just how much an engineer has to do to make sure that something will work. There's a lot of math involved. There's a lot of subtle things that have to be accounted for. Um, but the engineer is thinking about how the thing is going to work. They're not really inclined to think of how it's going to fail. Mm. So that's how you end up with the bolt in a place where you can't get a fucking spanner on it. The technician is thinking of how am I going to fix this thing when it breaks? And the first thing they see is that damn bolt that you can't put a spanner on. Yeah. 
they're like, what moron did this? Yeah. And, and so technicians are convinced that engineers are morons and engineers are convinced that technicians are, uh, pessimists. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's more, more than that. They're Philistines who don't understand the subtleties of things. Uh, now I was trained as an engineer. I have three, I have three fourths of an engineering degree. So I know how engineers are trained to think. And I spent my life actually as a technician. So I know how technicians have to think. And I understand both ways of coming at it. So when I'm in a room, it's like watching a ping pong match. It's like I know what both of these guys are thinking and why, and neither of them is seeing the other's point of view. But uh, where this links back is that when I hear like the boosters for things like VR, uh, they're not seeing how it's going to break. They're not seeing how it's inconvenient, how it's an imposition, how it's socially awkward. Uh, all of these can be deal breakers. And, you know, it's like a subtle thing. Like you would think, well, how important is that? The difference between walking in this door of an adult theater and walking in the door of your video rental store mm. is night and day. Yeah. But if you're the producer you're making the exact same product. You yeah. may not even realize yeah. how much that change in the distribution channel has changed your ability to monetize what you're creating. You're creating the exact same thing, but it's reaching the end user in a completely different way. And that's another thing with VR. VR uses a shitload of bandwidth. You know, it, you to do it right uh, uses way more bandwidth than video so what are yeah. we back to the video that you extract from it is low res because you've got to have enough information to reconstruct a three-dimensional environment or are you going to have a low enough latency connection so that the connection can say you have moved your head and 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 serve it up from the server just that frame that you need at that moment uh you got guys that feel like they're being cheated if they don't get 120 frames per second on their video game console it's like and we're going to make them happy with this technology um yeah i, I, I just see uh i see all the obstacles yeah. and i don't see solutions to a lot of them so that's why I'm, I'm i'm not really seeing the next technology that's why i'm not seeing the next technology for porn because i see where it is and i'm not seeing how the deal gets broken uh yeah. the you know i've there, there's obviously a shoe waiting to drop and I don't know who it's going to fall on at this point. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the tube sites are basically strangling the mainstream porn industry. Um, the fetish porn industry is hanging on by a thread despite the tube sites because they're narrow focus and they can still do interactivity, which is sure. a, a bigger thing for fetish, fetish consumers than it is for mainstream. Um, but uh, if no one is going to you know, to pay for production, then why would anybody produce something except uh, except crap? And that's what you're also getting now is you can't compete, uh, you can't sell something that people are giving away for free. It's why you can't sell what's being broadcasted on the tube sites, but you also can't sell what people are voluntarily making for free with the tools that exist now you've got entire communities that write fi their own fiction and share it that's how yeah. 50 shades of gray got started it was fanfic really that's cool i didn't know that that's cool pops yeah. to that guy or yeah girl. yeah it um uh, yeah in uh in fact it was a vampire uh what was what is it, it wasn't buffy it was the other one um it was it was it was fanfic for one of the popular vampire uh story series that's cool. but they have a they have a subgenre of it that's uh that is basically uh, mortals only, 
And so Fifty Shades of Grey started out as an online serial uh, for this group. Uh, and the, uh, you know, so you can't compete with written fiction if, if that's if the, what you're doing. There, there are people writing their own porn all over the place. Yeah. Uh, there, uh, there are people doing uh, what they call uh, rendering, where they, they do three-dimensional models using Poser and uh, have the computer spend 20 hours uh, mm-hmm. wrote, rendering them as a photographic image. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and to, to, to get people or pseudo people in these situations. And that still isn't very good, but it's getting very noticeably better year by year. Um, eventually, it's going to be possible to make video that way. Uh, yeah. So you've got all of these forces swirling around. Uh, and, uh, and and I don't really see where the next step is personally. It's It's... Uh, but I see all of the potential suggestions that I've seen are seriously flawed. Uh, I think that that's going to be like LaserDisc or something. You know, it's going to look great on paper and it's going to be real impressive and it's not going to fly commercially. Yeah, it's what it's going to be is it's is it's just going to I mean like all Darwinian selection. It's just going to it's not going to stop. We know that the porn's not going to stop. It will yeah. find a way. It'll be some, just like a DNA mutation. It'll find a way, and it'll be just as alien to us as we look back at 1910 with the armory, and they're like, you'll never know that one day there's going to be like high fidelity, high resolution pornography filmed here with a yeah. Yes, don't tell, don't tell the architect. No, piped in over the the internet. What's the internet? It's fiber optic. What's fiber optic? Oh, it's you know, it's going to be so far out that yes. there's, you know, imagine one, one day this building will have the largest server room in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's a server room? You know, it's going to be like we're laying out railroads. We're going to corner the market. And it's like, no, really, all you need is like a mile by one mile area and do what with it? You're going to build an airport and then you just don't need anything outside of that because you're going to go over it. What are you talking about? You have to have a physical structure. No, it's just you just need one little patch. That's it. Where you yeah. can go from there, wherever you want, Tokyo, Atlanta, that's what it's going to be, is we're going to look back at this, and pornography is just going to be like, oh, it did that thing. These guys, Tommy and Roger yeah. could have never seen whatever, you know? Oh, ab- absolutely. It's, but yeah. but on, on the other hand, it could be it could be another 15 years while people are looking back at, well, you know, if you look at uh, Behind the Green Door or uh, the stuff that Insects and Kink were doing in 2003, then no, there's nothing like that being produced ever since, you know, since then. Yeah, maybe we go back. So, maybe we go back in time. Terrence McKenna, the archaic revival. We go back, you find, yeah. you find a spot in reality that was working well, and then you bring that moment into the future. That's what <laughs> he said. Go. That's what he said. You, you were, uh, well, I, think the connection is, I think the connection is faltering again. Oh, damn it. Can you hear me? Roger, are we yeah. good? Okay. Well, yeah, let's... it was just starting to break up a little. All right, well, let's wrap this bitch up. We are at almost at 100 minutes on the nose. That's impressive. Um, but, okay. yeah, let's do another. If I, can I grab you for another episode next week? I, let me, sure. Real time. Let's, let me check, make sure I'm not working. Do, do, do. Roger, keep the kill the dead space, Roger. What are we going to talk about? Um, Porn, boobs, aliens. Yeah, I'm good. Next Wednesday. Today's Wednesday. Yes, next Wednesday. I'm good.
You want to do another episode next Wednesday, yeah. same time, or sure. later? You yeah. just we started yeah. earlier. Let's see. Uh, I have a dramatic uh, tale to tell about the casino industry and card counting and all kinds of interesting stuff. Booked. We're doing it. We're doing. It. <laughs> this is going to be the humble beginnings. The whole thing is not that this is the humble beginnings of TPC. TPC is going to die out. They're going to find my body dead in a ditch, and I'm going to be a nobody. But this is going to be the humble beginnings of Roger Williams, right? It's going to be like well, you. You've actually had some pretty interesting guests, so uh, it's like I would expect eventually for it to pick up somehow. And it's, it's good. Uh, it's good. I have faith. I think it will. I'm sending. I'm sending the links to a few people. Thanks, so. man. I appreciate it. I think they're coming out good. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's. It'll be interesting to see what my dad's reaction is to this one. Hey, man. <laughs> hey, man. It, there's two types of people in the world. There's people that watch porn and they're fucking and they're fucking liars. Right? That's it. That's that's what Ed Snowden said. If you you need to read Ed Snowden's book, Permanent Record. He's that's what he talks about. He's like, for everyone worried about the government looking at your porn, nobody gives a fuck. They're like, guess what? You watch porn. So does your neighbor. Guess what? So does your grandma. No, not your grandma. Oh yeah, so does your grandma, and so does mine. You just you fate. It's not that you respect the privacy. You just get to a point where you get numb to it. You're like, I don't give a fuck. I know the director of the CIA is looking at porn. I don't give a shit. So am I. Whatever. You just. You said you just become numb to it. So um, yeah. To anyone that doesn't well, like this like, idea, shut. Maybe up. we should be more like the Romans and just not give a shit. I dude, I think that is, dude. I, I in my idea of how world peace comes about, it's gonna be. All the somehow everyone gets locked in at the next Bilderberg meeting or some shit or UN, and someone pipes in gaseous MDMA and Viagra, and they all just fuck, and we're gonna have world peace because there's no way that you there's no way you can send Marines to die in other people's countries when you have been locked in an eternal gaze while coming into one another. You're no way you're gonna bomb each other's nation when you have when you have twisted into a, a twin flame with another person. That's how I look at it, you know. Like even exes, as much time has passed, you still look back and you're like, you know what? I learned a lot about myself, and I hope that person does well. That's we just need all of the fucking world leaders to just look at each other and be like, you know what? Like, you know, I have some kinky memories of that guy. You know, no, we're not bombing them. Let's try to work this out. Let's try to work this out. We can. We don't need an embargo. We don't need nukes. You know, I used to fucking jizz on that guy's face. World peace, right? It's. <laughs> <laughs> what else would Works do it because hey right now what's working right now is we're pointing nukes at each other so anything less creep anything less mad than that to me I'm like a bunch of people fucking that's a lot less crazy than 70,000 nuclear tipped warheads pointing at each other yeah on that note this podcast has descended into insanity so um but hey to me that's the that's the good that's the mark of a good podcast when it when it eventually wheedles out into psychedelics, world peace, fucking, and UFOs, we haven't even touched on that, so we stayed on the rails. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Did you see that UFO sighting over in New Jersey that everyone was freaking out about? Turns out it was just the Goodyear blimp. But it's the way the fog, sh- the way the fog shrouded it. Yeah. it. It shrouded the screen, so what was the Goodyear blimp with the screen? Because of the fog, it turned into a disc with a blue hue at the bottom. People are stopping on the side of the turnpike like, oh, fuck, it's a UFO. It's a fucking Goodyear blimp. There's just some dude up there, yeah. his hand on his dick, just I've, driving I've, around. I've heard a similar story about, in fact, uh, a friend of mine told me that they didn't believe that uh, one of the famous UFO reports 
was determined to be a flock of geese. And they were like, no, that's bullshit. No one would mistake geese for the way that these things were described. And they were watching over uh, the lake at sunset one day, and a, a flock of geese came over, and they were Ill- illuminated just so, so that the sunlight was bouncing off of their white bellies, and they looked like these UFOs, you know, circling around one another. And and they were like, until I saw it with my own eyes, I would have never believed yeah. that you could mistake them. But I could tell that they were geese before the lighting, you know, before yeah. they got into that light. And it was like, seen that. it was, you know, who would who would have, who would think that? You know, it's like think, no, the government is pulling my leg. There's no way that those were geese. And I was like, damn, I saw them and they were geese. Meanwhile, they just have the government. Like yeah, you have the they have the CIA agents looking at each other like it really was geese. You know, it really was swamp gas. God damn it, it was. I swear to God, it's like um, in uh, Annie Jacobson's uh, the Pent- DARPA, the Pentagon's brain, which is a great book. They talk about having this early radar station in uh, Antarctica or Greenland, whatever, wherever, some frozen tundra, and they calibrated it, and it was so right, and it was so perfect. And then, like the first day it came on, they saw a massive all-out Soviet attack, and they were like, "Oh no!" And it was picking up the moon. Coming yep. over the horizon. I, I, I saw that story. Okay. All yeah, right. it, was, well, it was the moon. All right, well, <laughs> fuck me. All right, there was my cool story. Thanks, Roger. <laughs> Just Yeah, I saw that. Next next, Oops, next story, funny boy. <laughs> Roger Williams, author of The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect. I will link that in the top comment and in the description. Until next week. And uh, hopefully that this is the beginning of the, the Roger Williams documentaries. I think it will be. I think it will be. You're going to be the new Ken Burns. Like, yeah, he got started on that. What was that guy's name? That shitty podcast, PTC, whatever. Yeah, I don't know. That guy's dead. They found him They found him dead in a barn with a bunch of cows. Yeah, whatever. It was that guy. Roger Williams. That's the, yeah, that's how I'm going down. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll wrap that bitch up. All right, Roger, stay safe. I'll, um, I'll send you an email on, like, Monday or something. We'll, we'll get in touch and, yeah. All right, my man. Thank you again. Stay safe, buddy. Bye. Peace.